0: This is we try to get to the offering plates as well. Um, again, we're just regular people. There's Amen. nothing special about us. Sometimes we forget to put the offering plates on the table. It's okay. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You know, we could blame that on Dee because she had to have her dominoes. We could. We could. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. You can stay seated while we read this. It says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and he stayed with them, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He was found. Uh, he first found his brother Simon and said to him, "We have found the Messiah, which means Christ." He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, "So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter." And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage that we have, this, this uh, great look we get to see into the early, some early conversions, some early people hearing the gospel and how that has all come to be. Um, and Lord, uh, I pray that as we look at this passage and examine our own lives, the Lord, we would be changed. We would not just hear the word, Lord, but we would apply it to our hearts as well. In your name, amen. Amen. Who in here has ever heard of a man named Edward Kimball? Edward Kimball. Nobody? Well, okay. Edward Kimball was a volunteer Sunday Sunday school teacher in Boston in the middle of the 19th century. So 1850s Boston volunteer Sunday school teacher. He prayed hard for every boy he taught and always tried to make sure that he shared the gospel with everyone in his class. In 1855, he pursued one of the 18-year-old members of his Sunday school class determined to share Christ with him at the shoe shop where the boy worked. So he's working at the shoe shop, and then the Sunday school teacher is on his way there. says, I am going to share Christ with him no matter what. That day, Dwight L. Moody received Christ as his Savior. Through D.L. Moody's ministry as an evangelist, more than one million people came to Christ on two different continents. But the story doesn't end there. One young man who, who uh, there is one young man who came to Christ through D. L. Moody's ministry, a man named Wilbur Chapman. He also became an evangelist and preached to thousands of people. One day, a professional baseball player came to one of Chapman's evangelistic meetings and he became a believer. That man was Billy Sunday. Sunday quit baseball and eventually began his own evangelistic crusades. During Billy Sunday's ministry, a young man came to know Christ by the name of Mordecai Ham, who also became an evangelist. Mordecai Ham eventually came to preach in Charlotte, North Carolina, where a young man who was called Billy Frank by his family had vowed that he would never come and hear Mr. Ham preach. However, Billy did finally attend Mr. Ham's evangelistic meeting, and he gave his life to Christ. You may have heard of Billy, although you may not have heard, you may have probably heard him from his given name, Billy Graham. Throughout the long, extensive ministry of Billy Graham, it was approximated in 2008 that 2.2 billion people had heard the gospel through his ministry. Do you think at all that in the 1850s, in 1855, when Edward Kimball walked to the shoe shop where Dwight, Dwight Moody was working, had any idea what was going to happen by sharing the gospel? Do you think he had a clue that one day D.L. Moody would preach to millions of people and millions of people would come to Christ? That through his ministry, others would come to Christ and eventually Billy Graham would come to Christ? What if Edward Kimball had decided to stay home that day? In very much the same way, we see a chain reaction or cascading effects of the ministry of John the Baptist in our text today. It's so important as we come to this text that we have this eternal vision of the things that we do. This eternal vision um, when it comes to our witness as a church and as individuals. We have no idea how God will use us or what kind of impact we will have on the kingdom of God by sharing the gospel at every opportunity we have. Now, typically, when I preach, I'll usually preach a section, come up with the applications, uh, preach the applications from that, and so on. Today, uh, this week, I I struggled trying to figure out how exactly to uh, present the material today, Um, not because of the presentation, but because I wanted to be accurate to the text. So what we're going to do today, in order to make sure we keep the text together, because I think this whole section is one complete section what we're going to do today is the first part of the sermon we're going to walk through the whole passage and explain through the whole passage then afterwards we'll do the application so instead of kind of going back and forth we'll do all of them in kind of two different blocks is that okay with everybody today all right so i'll ask you to keep your bibles open and follow along as we go through this so, coming into, uh, beginning to explain the text, so we're starting in verse 30, 35. Now really, we can, uh, we can actually trace back a little bit and go to verse 29. We can see that John makes this very public proclamation about the identity of Christ. We saw this last week. He yells out, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right before he baptized Jesus. In this moment, he makes the same proclamation, but it's only to two people. Right, so this is more of a private proclamation that he gives. He, he, he has this more, more of a private, uh, more intimate setting. He is uh, only with two of his disciples. As they pass by Jesus, John says to his disciples, look, you can see that in verse 36, Says he, when Jesus walked by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So he just tells this in this, in this small way to his closest disciples there. And upon hearing this, John's disciples immediately stop following John, And start following Jesus. Look at this. It says that the two disciples in verse 37 heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. It was that simple. He said, that's the Lamb of God. And they said, oh, okay. Let's follow him now. Now, at this point, point, uh, the gospel of John intends us to understand that they literally followed behind Jesus. Right? This wasn't just some kind of metaphorical idea. They, they began to uh, believe the teachings of Jesus or something like that. This is, they literally followed directly behind him. This is what literally was, was going on at this point. In, 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 uh, in, in this time period, when someone attached themselves to a teacher, that's what they would actually do. The teacher would be walking around through the town, and his followers would be right behind him coming along with him. Right? Now, John, later in the gospel, will start using the word follow in this more metaphorical sense of believing what they were teaching. But at this point, he's still may- meaning for us to understand this in a very literal way. So the gospel begins to use this idea of followers of Jesus. G- uh, at this point, John intends to understand this to be a very literal thing. Now, look at, notice what John the Baptist doesn't do. Right, He doesn't become concerned that his followers no longer are following him. He doesn't, he doesn't stop and go... But hey, you're you're, you're my followers. Well, no, don't don't follow him yet. Come on, well, I I want to still want to talk to you about some other things. He lets them go. He just lets them go. Now now, John's whole purpose as the forerunner of the Messiah was to point others to Jesus, right? So he did exactly what he's supposed to do. He points them to Jesus, and here John fulfills his task. So at this point, at the beginning of this passage, throughout John 1, John the baptizer has been kind of having this central role as the forerunner of Jesus. And here we see John kind of start to slip into the background. He says, hey, there's Jesus. And as Jesus starts entering the scene, John the baptist kind of disappears into the background. We don't hear from him for another couple of chapters in the book of John. This small statement in verse 36 is the last we hear of him for several more chapters. Um, Continuing on to verse 38. It says that Jesus turned and saw them following him and said, what are you seeking? It's a simple question, right? Now, um, this question is is actually fairly loaded, even though it's just a simple statement. It's a fairly loaded question. Um, D.A. Carson, uh, one commentator on this passage, he says, quote, Jesus asked the two men who are following him to articulate what's on their minds. But the gospel writer also wants his readers to reflect on a deeper question. The Word who is the Messiah, remember he had, uh, John had called him the Word in, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word who is also the Messiah, confronts those who make any show of beginning to follow him and demands that they articulate what they really want in life. When we meet Jesus, when we come face to face with Christ, this is what he asks of us. What are you looking for? What do you want? Do you want just a miracle worker? Do you want somebody to just give you millions of dollars? Or are you looking for a savior who can radically change your life? What are you seeking? Now, again, the, the two disciples don't take it at that deeper meaning. They kind of respond in a little bit more of a simple way. The question is loaded, but their answer is simple. Rabbi, where are you staying? Right? Jesus asks this really loaded question. What are you looking for? And They say, oh, we just want to know where you live. Like, they're obviously, they're not, they're not opening themselves up completely yet. They're, they're still working into the relationship. And he says, Rabbi. Now, John here is really cool. John, I uh, love how he, uh, the personality you see in the gospel of John. Um, John will do these things where he'll explain things to maybe a, an audience that may not speak the same language. The word Rabbi is an Aramaic word for teacher. Now, someone who is a Greek speaker may not know what the Aramaic phrase is, so he says, Rabbi, which means teacher, this. Right? So he he so John does that. You'll see that all throughout the Gospel of John, John will explain and give kind of give like a miniature commentary. I think I find that so fascinating as I read the Gospel of John. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, he had asked the, he they asked this question: where are you staying? Um and uh, Jesus then invites them to his home. Look at this here in uh, in verse 39. He says to them, come and you will see. This phrase also keeps coming up throughout the passage. Come and you will see. Jesus is saying, okay, well, come on and follow me and you'll find out. Right? Kind of his, his open invitation that he gives them. And then it says, uh, so they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. This is probably about 4 p.m. All right? So imagine they don't have cars. There's no headlights on their cars. There's no electricity, right? So it's about 4 p.m. It's gonna get dark soon, okay? And it's desert, desert desert-type areas, right? And if they were gonna walk home, it could be a few hours walk to get home, if not a few days walk to get home. If they were to leave now, it could be very dangerous for them, robbers or thieves. Uh, could could attack them on the highway. Somebody could murder them on the highway. So Jesus opens up his house to them, and they stayed with him that night. <clears throat> now we learn the identity of one of the followers. Look, look down in verse 40. It says, One of the two who heard John speak but was following, was following Jesus was Andrew. All right. He says, Andrew, who was Peter's brother, Simon Peter's brother. Now what's interesting about this Um We have one, so we get one person that gets named, but the gospel never tells us who the other one is, right? It says Simon, or Andrew, who's Simon Peter's brother. It never tells us the identity of the second one. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, The one, the first one's name is, is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Even though John's not yet mentioned Simon Peter, he assumes that his readers are aware of who he is. Now remember, John is writing in the end of the first century. So this is, 96ish AD, right. So at this point, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already circulating. They were already they've already been written. They're already circulating. The church is already flourishing. Uh, Paul has written most, if not Paul has written all of his letters. Um, John is kind of is he's writing his gospel fairly late in the game, if you will, of scripture writing going on, and he says so. People probably knew who Peter was, right? So he says Andrew. If you don't know who Andrew is, this is Peter's brother, right? even though Peter hasn't even shown up on the scene yet. So it's kind of a neat little, little uh, one of the kind of cool things we see in this is that you, you kind of get this idea that you're kind of getting firsthand knowledge. You're kind of getting something from somebody who was there, right? Somebody who knew, knows what's going on. Uh, so it wasn't written hundreds of years after Jesus walked the earth. The gospel of John was not written. It was written by somebody who saw these things going on and who was there. <clears throat> Peter uh, would be... He later would become well-known as a leader among the churches. His brother Andrew, however, was not as well-known, much like Edward Kimball, who we heard about in the beginning. They may not have known who Andrew was, and this this is why John brings him up. Now, the identity of the second disciple remains unclear. We don't know. It doesn't specifically tell us. However, we can maybe guess, right? Okay, so this is not gospel truth. This is not in the text. But we can kind of make a guess. Uh, throughout the Gospel of John, John hardly ever, the Gospel writer John, hardly ever refers to himself. In fact, the closest we get is at the Last Supper. It talks about, referring to John, it talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved. Right, That's John's favorite way to refer himself. Refer to himself in the Gospel of John. The disciple whom Jesus loved and had to keep on loving. Right, The way he says it, the way the phrase is there in, in the Gospel of John. It's not like this braggadocious thing where he's saying, I'm the guy that Jesus loves. I'm Jesus' favorite. It's, it's actually the, the way that the verb is there, the one who Jesus loved, it's actually this idea of had to love and keep on loving. In other words, like, I'm a messed up guy. Jesus had to keep loving me over and over and over again because I kept messing up. So this is the way John refers to himself. So John has his habit of not talking about himself in the gospel. So it's very possible that since he doesn't mention who this guy is, that this was him. This is John the Apostle, right here. Um, Again, okay, we don't know that for sure, but it's, it's, it's something that we can reasonably guess. Um, it's possible, then, that John uh, would not mention himself by name here, since that's kind of his uh, modus throughout the rest of the text. Uh, first, Andrew finds his brother Simon and tells him the good news. Look at this. It says, uh, in verse 41, this is talking about Andrew. He first found Peter... His own, uh, 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 he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And he explains, which means Christ. It's the Greek word Christos or Christ. he, he uh, He finds his brother Simon and tells him the good news. We found the Messiah. Andrew excitedly shares this news with his brother, claiming that Jesus is the anointed one. The one promised in the Old Testament scriptures, the one whom, through whom they could be saved, the one whom John the Baptizer has been proclaiming in the wilderness. We found him. We know who he is. Andrew brings his brother to Jesus. Look at this in verse, verse 42. It says, He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, So you're Simon, son of John. Andrew doesn't say, Hey, Jesus, this is my brother, Andrew. I want you guys to meet each he- other. This is my brother, Simon. and I want you guys to meet each other, right? Jesus right away knows who he is. He says, Jesus says, Hey, you're Simon, the son of John. Now check this out. Before Simon can even say a word, Jesus is showing that he is divine, showing that he is equally God, right? He knows his name before he even gets a chance to tell him his name. Not only that, it says, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, or Rock. Not only does he know his name, he then changes his name. Now, throughout the Old Testament, somebody changing somebody's name, this is idea of changing their identity, changing who they are. God does these things. In Genesis, Abraham, if you remember early in Genesis, his name is Abram, and his wife's name is Sarai. And God says, your name's no longer going to be Abram and Sarah. It's Abraham and Sarah. God changes their names because he changes the roles that they're going to have. And then in, uh, later on in Genesis, there's a, a, a guy named Jacob, right? And, af- and after uh, God deals with Jacob, he says, your name is no longer going to be Jacob. Your name is going to be Israel. God changes people's names. And here Jesus does what God does and changes Peter's changes Simon's name to Peter. Why? The word Peter means rock. Jesus already knew what Peter was going to be doing. Now again, we have in the in the gospel of John, what you'll notice here, John Jesus doesn't give a formal call to Peter. He doesn't say, "Okay, Peter, your name's going to be your name's not going to be Peter. Come follow me." Doesn't happen right here. In fact, this, the way the Gospel of John is organized, the P- Peter's official call to ministry doesn't come to the very end of the Gospel in John chapter 21. Where after he tells Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He says, now come follow me. Not till John chapter 21. John, or Jesus at this point already, they had, they've just met. He hasn't even called him to ministry yet. And he says, I know what you're going to be. You're going to be the rock. And Peter ends up being foundational in the beginning of the church. In fact, Peter preaches the first Christian sermon that we have recorded in the book of Acts. Do you think Peter would have known that, that someday he would preach and thousands of people would get saved? And the Holy Spirit would come and show up in a big way. Does he have any clue right now what's going to happen there? He has no idea. Do you think Andrew knew that telling his brother that his brother was going to do these things? No idea. If we continue on, look in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, uh, tracking back just a second, if you go back to verse 41, it says Andrew first went and found his brother. Now, there's no mention of a second, but we can kind of imply the way that the, way that the, the text is written. We can imply that most likely Andrew went on ahead of Jesus and he had told his told uh, told Philip about him because if you look at this, it also says uh, that Philip was from Bethsaida in verse forty four, the city of Andrew and Peter. So this is probably his friend. Like we know you. Hey, he's like I'm gonna go tell Philip before before we get there, before Jesus gets there, right? So then Jesus, so most likely Andrew had also told Philip, right? And Jesus gets to Galilee, he finds Philip and says, "Follow me." And that's it, right? He says, "Follow me." And it doesn't tell us explicitly, but we are fairly convinced that Philip decides to follow Jesus. Look at this, verse 44. Uh, Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. This is the one who all of the Old Testament... Is all about that phrase, the law and the prophets, the, that, that phrase. You'll see that often in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. This is in the first century. This was a common way to refer to the Old Testament as a whole. It wasn't talking about just certain books of the Old Testament. Like, oh, this is just in those, those rules in, in Leviticus. And, and that's the law. And the prophets, that's just some of these other guys. Just, there was a, it was a shorthand way to say the whole Bible, right? Moses in the law and also the prophets. And this is the guy who has been proclaimed in the whole of the Old Testament. And so, so Philip makes this assertion about Jesus, he makes this claim about Jesus, um, and, and he, that's what he tells his, uh, his friend Nathaniel. Um, at this point, Philip also, as we're, we're talking about these chain reactions, do you remember what happens with Philip in the book of Acts? Do you remember what happens with Philip? There's one very special circumstance. Band, yes. But, uh, yes. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Right. So there was this man who was a he was a, uh, a, a figure. He was a leader in his in his community in the country of Ethiopia. And he had been traveling to to Jerusalem and he was on his way back. And, and as the scripture tells us, he's reading Isaiah and he's completely confused. Right. He's reading basically, as we see in there, he's reading Isaiah 53 and he is totally confused. He's like, who is this guy? That's dying for people. Who's this guy that's being led like led like a lamb before the slaughter? Who is this guy? He's con- completely confused. And God takes Philip from where he was, transports him. I don't know how this happened. God invented teleporting. We haven't figured that one out yet, but God can do it. right? <laughs> he takes Philip and places him right before the caravan and says, Philip, share the gospel with that. Right. So he talks to the guy and he says, uh, so what's going on? He's like, oh, I'm completely confused about this. Who is this guy that I'm reading about? that's jesus right he shares the gospel with this ethiopian eunuch and 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 at the same time must have been asking him about baptism and he says so what prevents me from getting baptized right there's water right there what's preventing me from getting baptized he says believe on me or believe in jesus sorry don't believe in philip believe in jesus right believe in jesus and you can be baptized and so john or uh, philip Gets this opportunity to this brand new believer to 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 baptize him, and then God immediately transports him again and takes him away, because it says when when the Ethiopian eunuch when he comes out of the water Philip was gone. It's it's fascinating this this miraculous thing that God does in the life of Philip. Do you think Philip had any clue at this moment that those two words "follow me" were going to lead to that? Not a chance. He had no idea what God had in store for him. How fantastic is that, right? What a fantastic uh, way, that thing, things that God's able to do with a simple act of obedience. <clears throat> and again, then he, then he goes and shares with Nathanael. We see that in verse 45. He finds his friend Nathanael and tells his friends what, he, what he's found. We've so, so we've seen thus far that John the Baptist leads two of his followers to Jesus. One of those followers has brought his brother and one of his friends to Jesus. Now, Philip continues that chain reaction. He finds Nathaniel. This is probably the same guy whose name is Bartholomew in the other Gospels. And shares the Gospel with him. We have found who, him whom the most in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip proclaims the same gospel message that he had heard from Andrew. Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom all the scripture is about. The term, the law and the prophets, as we already explained, is a a reference to the Old Testament. Now again, this is kind of a little bit of a smaller nuance in the passage. I found it really fascinating as I was studying this week. Um, You should notice at the end of Philip's statement, there's a little bit of an ironic claim here, right? Wayne's already shaking his head. Like, yeah, I see it. Right. There's a little bit of an irony here. The Gospel of John loves to use irony. You'll see that it gets a lot more explicit as we'll get through the te- as we'll get through the Gospel. But uh, he uses the irony this irony to show the foolishness of the disciples, how ridiculously uh, what little they knew. Right. Um, here, the irony is almost lost the first time you read it. But if you've read the Gospel and you're reading it again, it becomes clearer. Um, Philip describes Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. The son of Joseph. Now again, if we go back to John chapter 1, we find out in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Now was this guy the son of Joseph? No. As others have already proclaimed, he is the son of God. Right? Joseph had nothing to do with it. In the other Gospels, you hear about the virgin birth. Mary had had no relations with Joseph before she became pregnant with with Jesus. There's nothing. Joseph has no real claim on fatherhood for Jesus. He he does kind of act as a substitute earthly father on on behalf of the Lord. uh, But he's not really the son of Joseph. Now again, so Philip not fully formed in his theology yet says hey we know this this is the messiah it's jesus of nazareth the son of joseph he's not really the son of joseph we've already seen this that he's the lamb of god um we can only help as we look at this we can only help but give a little bit of a snicker as we see this and, and knowing what philip was about to learn as he follows jesus right, looking ahead if we've already read the gospel of john we're like yeah you better watch out this is going to be, Jesus of the Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's that's a funny one. And get, get, guess what you're going to be hearing. So irony aside, uh, continuing on, Nathanael approaches the whole situation as a skeptic. Look at this. Nathanael says to, to to Philip, he says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> what possibly good could come out of Nazareth? There's several reasons which may contribute to his skepticism. First, Nazareth is not, found, is, not, is, not, is not found anywhere as having Messianic significance. There's no Old Testament passages that talk about Nazareth. The Old Testament mentions that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. Nathanael was, was unaware that Jesus was born, in, was born in Bethlehem and only knew where he was living, in Nazareth. Second, Nazareth was a small town of approximately 200 people. We know something about small towns here. The expectation of the Messiah at the time was of a political leader who would come conquering. Nazareth was a seemingly insignificant town, hardly the place where a great leader would come from. Third, not only did people from Judea look down on on towns in Galilee like Nazareth, but it also seems other Galilean towns also despised Nazareth probably here a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a clash between two towns. John twenty one two tells us that Nathaniel was from the town of Cana. Um, his question seems to indicate that there is a rivalry between the two towns of Cana and Nazareth, much like the rivalry between Gordon and Strawn. Now, to be honest, during the week that Strawn is going to play against Gordon, wouldn't we ask the same question? What good would come out of Strawn? right especially those guys who run sound right <laughs> right so um there's a there's a little bit there's probably some kind of rivalry here much like we have town rivalries as well so then the messiah came out of nazareth what are you talking about i think good comes out of nazareth even though nathan was a skeptic philip continues to persist in sharing jesus with them he says come and see right just like jesus had told the other two disciples he responds to the skeptic with the answer, "Come and see." He doesn't shy away because he doesn't have the answer. He just invites Nathaniel to find out for himself. Now, Nathaniel may be a skeptic, but at least he's honest about it. He decides, "Okay, let's go find out." Right? And we have some some skeptics who are like, ah, "That's that's not true. Not. There's no, nothing you can say that could possibly convince me." At least Nathaniel is honest and he's willing to go and find out the answer. This is exactly what Jesus says when Jesus meets Nathaniel. He already knows that he's an honest skeptic. That's essentially what Jesus means in his statement. Look what Jesus says to him in verse uh, in uh, in verse uh, forty-seven. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, "Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit." It's basically what he's saying is, "You don't have any bad motives for coming here to find out from find out who I am. You're, you're you're coming here honestly." Now look what Nathaniel how Nathaniel responds. Is uh, uh, he, he's kind of kind of shocked. He's like, "How do you?" know who I am? Look what he says. He says, um, uh, Nathaniel uh, said to him, how do you know me? How do you know who I am? Now, we already know the answer. We as the readers already know exactly how Jesus knows him. Jesus is God. Which means that he's all-knowing. He knew who Peter was earlier. Nathaniel asked, how do you know me? Jesus now reveals another one of his divine attributes. Not only does he know all things, but he exists everywhere at once. He says, I saw you. He doesn't just say, I know who you are. He says, I saw you when you were under that fig tree, right? And Nathanael's question, how do you know me? He's like, probably not like, yeah, I saw you down the road there. Like, Nathanael might have seen, oh, you probably saw me coming up. He might have told you. But Nathanael has no idea that, Philip, that, that Jesus has any idea who he is. So, most, so it, just, it shows that Jesus is also everywhere at once. He says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. For Nathaniel, this was evidence enough to calm his skeptical mind. Only one who is God could have known what Jesus knew. He confesses his new faith in Jesus. Look what he says here Jesus in verse uh, 49. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now we've already saw what that means for him to claim that he is the Son of God. This title, the King of Israel, refers to both Genesis 49 and 2 Samuel seven. Uh, verses 12 and 13. In Genesis 49, we're told that a kingly scepter will not depart from Judah. In other words, one from the line of Judah would reign as an eternal king. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that he would give his offspring an eternal throne. Nathanael is affirming at the same time that Jesus is the son of God. He's also affirming that he is the fulfillment of those passages. Jesus is the eternal king who reigns over God's people. Jesus does not deny these titles. If you remember John, when he was told, hey, you're Elijah, you're this, you're that. He's like, no, that's not me. I'm not him. Jesus doesn't deny the titles. Why doesn't Jesus deny the titles? Because they're true. Right? He doesn't deny the titles like John did. He accepts the honor bestowed by the titles. Because there were true statements about him. Jesus is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. Even though, uh, even though he accepts the worship given by Nathaniel, he further challenges Nathaniel. Look at verse 50. Jesus says here, he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Kind of like, that was it. That's all it took for you to believe is, hey, I saw you under the fig tree. And he says, if that's enough for you, look what he says next here. He says, you will see greater things than these. If you thought that was cool, you're going to see better things than that. The statement foreshadows the rest of the gospel. Nathanael would see many miracles performed by Jesus, ending with the greatest of his miracles, his death and resurrection, which would conquer sin and bring salvation to those who would believe. Jesus finishes the chapter, continuing to encourage uh, Nathanael with his affirmation of yet another way in which he fulfills scripture. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. Here, Jesus is making explicit. Uh, an explicit reference to Genesis chapter 28, verse 12, which we read earlier today. Um, Jesus clarifies that there is a difficult grammatical point. There was some debate on whether or not the angels were descending the, ascending and descending on the ladder or on Jacob himself. Now, Jesus kind of clarifies what's, how to understand the passage um, in, in this. The, the grammar in the Hebrew is a little bit obscure, and Jesus is saying this is how we understand it. This is what it is. It's it's it really could be read, should be read, or, or as Jesus seems to be interpreting, it should be read as the angels were descending and ascending and descending on him, not on it. Um, and and this is uh, this is what Jesus uh, claims here. Um, <clears throat> so uh, he's clear that they're ascending and descending on a person, and here he says it's the Son of Man. At the same time that Jesus is referring to this passage to just demonstrate that Nathaniel. To Nathanael and the other disciples that he, the Son of Man, which is a Messianic term Jesus used to refer to himself, was the true Jacob, the true Israel, the one sent by the Father, whom all should and must recognize as the Messiah in order to be saved. There's so much going on in this one little phrase that Jesus makes, uh, this this point of uh, how he's fulfilling scripture. Now that we've kind of broken down the passage, let's move into some application points. What can we learn from this passage? And I apologize about the time already, but I, I, let's, let's move into some application here. Throughout this passage, we have seen the far-reaching effects of simple people sharing their faith with others. As we alluded to, some of these simple men who are just getting acquainted with their Messiah will go on to do great things for the Lord, even though they didn't know it at the time. Andrew had no idea that his brother Peter or his friend Philip had no idea what they would do for for the uh, kingdom of King Jesus, but he faithfully shared with them. In the same way, our lives have cascading effects or this chain reaction beyond what we envision. Small decisions we make to serve the Lord can have radical effects. Helping cook a meal on Wednesday night could mean a child has their belly filled and comes to know Jesus as their Savior. Telling your neighbor about Jesus could lead to them becoming a Christian and starting a revival in the city of Gordon. We just don't know how God will use our smallest actions of service. Now on the flip side of that, kind of the dangerous aspect, we may choose not to share or not to serve. Maybe we choose not to serve and and help out with, with a meal. And a child is distracted by his hungry stomach and he cannot concentrate when the gospel is is presented and he never accepts Christ. Maybe you never decide to share the gospel with your neighbor and your neighbor never hears the good news and never is saved. In North Carolina, the Baptist men are helping with the flood victims in Louisiana. They're encouraging churches to paint trash bags. Kind of a simple idea. With Bible verses, they're painting these trash bags with Bible verses. These bags will be used to deliver clean and pressed clothes back to those victims. A teenage girl who might decide to paint a bag to help those who would have no idea, what, uh, to help that, that cause, would have no idea the kind of impact her decision would make. Perhaps one of those victims would see the verse, begin to be open to the gospel, become radically saved, and be the next Billy Graham. Just because she decided to help out by writing a verse, on a, writing, painting a verse on a trash bag. Now ultimately, we don't know what will happen with our smallest actions of service, but we do know exactly what will happen if we do nothing. Nothing will happen. That's why, like John the Baptist and like Andrew and like Philip, we should be faithful to share the Lord however we can. Further, what would have happened if Andrew and the other disciple decided, you know what, that Jesus, he's a great guy and it's cool that he's the Lamb of God, but we really like John. So we're going to keep following him. John 1 would have, never, would have ended in verse 36. We wouldn't have had the rest of the chapter. This is what happens when we begin to value something other than Jesus. Anything we value greater than Jesus would be, could be considered an idol. But when we value our traditions more than Jesus, or our money, or our relationships, or our positions of power, those things are an idol to us. If Andrew had decided to prize John the Baptist over Jesus, John the Baptist would have been an idol. If John had prized his disciples more than Jesus, he would have kept his disciples from following, Jesus, from, uh, from following him so that he could keep them to himself. He would have said, no, they're my disciples, Jesus, you can't have them. Jesus gives us command after command of what we must give up in order to follow him. When we decide to prize other things before Jesus, we do the most selfish thing imaginable. We stop the work of the gospel. You may think, you know, I might lose my status or my money or whatever by being radically obedient to the scriptures. Um, And, and, you know, you may decide then, uh, I'm just going to lay low and I'm not going to do anything. Or worse, reinterpret scripture to make it not apply to you. When Jesus says, give up all you have and share, you know, give up all you have and follow me, he didn't mean that. He didn't mean give away all your money and follow me. He meant be willing to maybe give up all your money and follow me. He wasn't serious about that. Really? I thought it was pretty clear what he's calling us to do. In, uh, you may decide to do this, but in so doing, my friend, you may keep your status... You lose your soul you will lose your testimony before those you are called to serve now in no other idea in no other place is this idea is so important to grasp as in the church in the church we love to prize our traditions right we love to have these things that we exalt as these great things that we used to do or we, we've always done things that way we love to venerate our leaders and our pastors and put them on a pedestal If If we, your leaders, are not pointing the church to Jesus, we are wrong. We are. We're dead wrong. If we as a church choose to manage ourselves in a way that is contrary to the scriptures, we are wrong. To do so has a long-range negative effect on our witness in the community and on our health as a body. Moving back to the positive, when we as a church choose to know nothing else except, uh, uh, nothing among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified, to uphold the gospel with firm biblical conviction, to manage ourselves with as much scriptural accuracy as absolutely possible, humbly submitting to the commands of Christ and to the commands of Scripture, when we do that, we will find ourselves to be a healthy church with an eternal outcome. When we see people saved, we will see people saved and lives changed. We will see ourselves, small little First Baptist Church of Gordon, Texas, make a monumental impact for the kingdom of God. We will become a part of continuing the gospel chain reaction that began 2,000 years ago by the simple statement by John the Baptist to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God. So in conclusion today, how about it? friends, and church? Will you choose today be, to be today to be a part of the gospel chain reaction, or will you choose to stifle that reaction? If you're a Christian today and there's any way that the Holy Spirit has been working on your heart, these stairs, or we may call it an altar, it's open for you. You're welcome to use it to spend some time with the Lord. If you are not a believer, you've seen in this pastor several men from different walks of life come to know Jesus as he truly is, as the Son of God. The Messiah. Let me tell you, the story doesn't end here. This same Jesus gave up his life by dying on a cross to pay for your sin. Three days later, he victoriously rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death, and offering salvation to you and to me. Will you, like Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, put your trust in Jesus today for your salvation? Do you have any questions? If you have any questions at all about about what it means to give your life to Jesus uh, or would like to talk to me, see me after the service. I'd love to talk with you about how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus. Lastly, if you're a visitor or uh, or if you've been visiting for a while and are looking for a church home, I would love to talk with you about how you can become a member of our church. Uh, many commands in Scripture are given, with the intent, uh, are, are, are given uh, to be obeyed in the, in with a community of other believers. God's intention is for those commands to be fulfilled in a committed relationship with the local church community. If you're interested in becoming a member, feel free to speak with me during our invitation or after the service. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity we had to look at your